You know, the test of a really good teacher, and I'm not saying I am one, but is to be able to take deep theology and explain it to a child. And so I want you, particularly as parents, to be working on explaining the incarnation of Jesus Christ to your child. And it's important. It's important today that all of us understand the incarnation. And to understand the incarnation is more than simply to have a head knowledge that Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person forever. It's more important than simply having a head knowledge, but to feel and to experience the impact that comes into our life when we express faith in that truth. Let's look at the scriptures this morning as we begin a series on the incarnation and its impact in our life. I don't need the reindeer right now. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 1, this is God's word. Matthew, the gospel writer, Matthew being one of the disciples of Jesus, begins his record, his historical account of how the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this manner. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I uh, read an account this last week of a man who, when he was a little boy in the 1930s, wanted to see the circus. In his small farming community, they had begun to put posters around town about the circus coming. And you can just imagine in the 30s and in a small uh, farming community in the Midwest, you would have, as a little boy, never had an opportunity to see a lion or an elephant or perhaps even a clown. He had never been to a circus and seeing the posters got him very excited. And so he went to his father and he said, I want to go to the circus. And the father said, I'm sorry, son, but we can't afford for you to go to the circus. It cost a dollar to go to the circus. 
It cost a dollar for the ticket. And that was a lot of money then. The son said, I will work for that. I will, I will work and I will earn money to go to the circus. And the father said, great. And so he worked. And he earned money and they went to the store and they bought a ticket to go to the circus. Well, the day that the circus arrived in town at the railway station, they unloaded the carts and the horses and they had a parade. And they began to go down the main street. And the little boy was there. And he was just enthralled with the elephants and the lions in the cage. And a clown came over to him. And a clown came over to him and spoke with him and greeted him. And he pulled out of his pocket the ticket. And he gave it to the clown. He went home. He was so excited. Papa, Papa, I saw the circus. I saw the circus. And his father said, No, son, you only saw the parade. That was not the circus. You only saw the parade. This morning, this season, this Advent, it would be equally sad if we only see the parade, if we see the nativity scenes, if we see the cards, if we see the programs, if we sing the songs, and we see passing us is the incarnation of Christ, but we fail to be renewed in its impact. It doesn't transform us. It doesn't change us at all. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer said that all of Christianity is to be best defined by personal possessive pronouns. That it's more than simply saying the Lord, we must move to a position where we say my Lord. It's more than simply saying Jesus. We must move to a place where we possess Him personally and say, My Jesus. And we acknowledge, if you are a Christian this morning, that Jesus Christ is God come to earth in the flesh. But we must move further to the point that we say, not only is Jesus Christ a member of the Trinity and God, But he's my God and my only God, as there are others, idols, that will compete with him. And so as we look at this nativity this morning, I want to encourage you to see this theme that we're going to play out over the next uh, number of Advent weeks. And that is that Jesus, this is the incarnation, Jesus is fully God. But Jesus is also fully man. But he's not schizophrenic. He's not 50% God, 50% man. He is in one person. And as he is in one person, he is 100% God. He's 100% man. He's in one person, and he's still that way. He is that way forever. Jesus Christ 
still has flesh. Jesus Christ still has a sense of being fully human. We're told in Hebrews that it's a great comfort to us to know that Jesus Christ knows as humans the struggles, the burdens, the trials, the temptations that we bear and we face. He understands, but he can do something about it because he's fully God as well. I want you to see two things this morning in the time that remains. First of all, I want to ask you the two questions. The two questions that I want to look at this morning are, number one, what is the incarnation? And then what is the impact? What's the impact of the incarnation? And under what is the incarnation, I want you to see that it's two things. Number one, it's a supernatural work. It's a supernatural act of the Trinity. It's supernatural. And number two, I want you to see that the incarnation, by definition, is God become human flesh. It is incarnate is flesh, but it's a union where God joins himself now and forever to human beings in the flesh. Then secondly, we're going to look at the impact. And there I want you to see, taking it very personally by way of application, I want you to see the pathway to God that the incarnation provides me. I want you to see the peace that it affords me. And then lastly, I want you to see the power the power to actually live out this incarnation in community with one another. First of all, I want you to see that the incarnation is a supernatural act. Uh, Wayne Grudem has this quote. It is by far, and this is the incarnation, the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Here in the Scripture... In Matthew's gospel, he is giving a defense of the virgin birth and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God come from heaven where he existed previously and taking the form of a baby that would grow to be a man. Matthew is giving a defense through the detractors of the virgin birth that would have arisen at this time in the writing of his gospel. Look at verse 18. It's a very small word. The word, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. But it is a tale. It's a clue as to where Matthew is going in his defense and in his historical record and narrative of the birth of Christ. The word is not used elsewhere in the gospel narratives to describe the birth of Christ. 
This is the word from which we get genealogy. It's a word that also means the beginning. It's a word that when Matthew's readers read this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, it goes back to Genesis 1.1 where we read, in the beginning, in the beginning, that word in the beginning gone to the Greek is the word for birth. So what Matthew is doing is he's saying the same activity, the same power of God, the same supernatural work that created the world created this child. The same spirit that hovered over the waters when they were formless and void, that God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Christ would create the world are in sync creating this birth. God the Father, once again, is the master architect. The Holy Spirit is going to be the active builder. And yes, Jesus Christ, pre-existing, would have conformed and given His agreement in what some theologians called the decision. The decision in the heavens, in eternity past, to come to earth in order to redeem man. Now, supernatural means supra, above, nature, nature. So above nature. We are natural men and women. We are not able to either create supernatural things or comprehend them completely. Matthew was writing when there was a slanderous attack on Christians. They were maligning Mary by saying, Mary committed an act of adultery with a Roman soldier and Joseph was just trying to clean things up by sanctioning it by marrying her. Matthew would say, nothing of the sort. Not only is it not something so sinfully slanderous as that, but it is a supernatural birth. Joseph is not the father. Another man is not the father. God is this child's father. Notice it says here, that the child is from the Holy Spirit. And we read it again at the end of verse 20. Conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We don't know how. I I don't know why people ask that question even. There are dumb questions, okay? I know you, you hear in the classroom, okay, ask any question, there's no dumb questions. That's a dumb question. How did the Holy Spirit impregnate Mary? Matthew Henry says... This is something to be adored and celebrated, not pried into. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the medium by which in the womb of Mary, a child is conceived, life is formed. But unlike any other child, this child will have fully God as his father and yet fully Mary as his mother. 
humanity and divinity joined in union together. Notice, though, that Joseph is troubled by this. It says in verse 19 that he's a very gentle and kind man, and instead of trotting her out to be stoned for adultery, he's going to quietly put her aside. He's going to break the engagement to be married, and he's going to quietly go his own way. But God will reveal to Joseph that this is no ordinary birth. God, we're told here in verse 21, or excuse me, verse 20, that God appeared, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this. If you're here today and you're saying, I understand that Christians say that Jesus is God and to be worshipped. That Jesus is God and we can pray to Him and pray through Him. That Jesus is God. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's everywhere. That He is omnipresent. That, that Jesus is fully God, but I don't believe it. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus was a wonderful teacher. I believe that Jesus was from God. He was a great prophet. I believe that he had miraculous powers from God that he could heal or he could do miracles. But I don't believe that he was God. My prayer for you, my prayer for you is that God would, like with Joseph, he would reveal to you the truth. And that's going to be required. I cannot stand at the edge of the stage today, and no, I'm not going to fall off, but I can't stand on the edge of the stage today and convince you by apologetic or by argument that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that Jesus Christ is fully God, and God is his Father, and he therefore is the incarnate God joined with man. I can't do that with a natural human argument. John Calvin says that the error, the erroneous conclusion that Joseph arrived at set the stage for God, it says an angel of the Lord, God in his own voice spoke to Joseph and he revealed truth him if you don't believe that Jesus is God and therefore the implication and the implications of that then can I encourage you to at least put it to the test be willing to pray be willing to like Joseph to sleep on it and say God everything I've looked and I've come so far in life to conclude is Jesus was a great teacher a good prophet a miracle worker a nice guy but he's dead. He's like the, the, the Muslim faith says that Jesus Christ is certainly not God because he was born on earth. God wouldn't be born on earth. He aged. He wouldn't age. And he died. 
he wouldn't die if he were God. And I would say that, again, if we've come to adopt a similar position, it's not going to be simply through natural inductive reasoning. It's going to be revealed to you by the very Spirit of God that reveals Jesus Christ and the incarnate birth to Joseph. So we've been talking about also what this is. It's a union. It's a union between a man and a God. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you more of this as we go along. But in Matthew 22, Matthew 22 in verse 42, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ puts this question before the preachers, the theologians. And I believe that this day, I want to put, in the, in the same way that Jesus Christ put the question, I want to put the question to you. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the one who's come from God? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And in verse 43, Jesus said, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? They're, what Jesus is doing is he's asking the religious of the day to move beyond simply acknowledging that when the Messiah, the man from God, comes... That he's not simply in the line of David, the human line, but that he is must be in the line of God, the divine line. He's saying, don't simply keep him in the royal line or the royal lineage of David. You must elevate him to see that he is that, but he's more. He's in the line of God. What will it do How will it impact us if I move him from simply royal king to divine God? This is Jesus. Not simply Jesus meek and mild, humble and quiet. This is Jesus that we celebrate his first coming, but it even then directs us to know that he is going to come back one day. And this God that comes back is going to come back with a tattoo on his thigh and a sword coming out of his mouth. I can't comprehend it. But he is our God. And this is the one that we follow. Well, what's the impact? Oh, uh, the impact is going to be three things. First, First of all, the impact is going to be a pathway to our union with God. If you, if you recall, this nativity is a fulfillment, again, of a promise made in the beginning. Matthew could point back and say that there was a promise back in the garden as Adam and Eve, who were in intimate relationship and union with God, We're being ushered out of the garden. God made a promise and said, I am going to make a way in the future for a reunion. I'm going to make a way for you to come back. That once again, God and man can have intimate fellowship together. And the way that I'm going to do it 
is I'm going to send a son. And that son will be one who will crush the head, who will break the curse that has caused us to be separated. When Christ comes, he is saying that he has bridged the distance. If he had simply never come as a human, the distance would have been too great for us to cover on our own by our good works or our own good acts. But if he had just simply come to earth and never been God, if he had just been a good man, he couldn't have bridged the celestial distance, the distance of of heavens and purity and holiness and sinlessness. John MacArthur says that the nature of the incarnation is such that Jesus Christ comes as the great water from heaven to quench the nature of the great fire of man. Jesus Christ has provided the perfect and the only acceptable pathway that we might go through Him now, God and man. As men approaching God, we go through Him. Secondly, there's peace. There's a peace that comes to us through this revealed truth. Now we believe as Christians... If you're a Christian in the room today, you, I hope, own a copy of the Scriptures, the Bible, Old and the New Testament. Whether it's on your phone or your iPad or you actually have a physical copy. We believe that the Bible is God's revealed truth. And to the degree that we trust it, that's called faith. We put weight upon it. I trust it. I can believe that this chair is real. But when I sit in it and I put my weight completely in it, that's trust. When we put our weight and our trust in God's revealed truth, it brings us peace. Notice Joseph. It says that Joseph, in verse 24, when he woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He did that without reluctance. What a nap. What a nap Joseph had. What a beautiful, sweet dream of a nap. He loves Mary. But in order to be obedient, in order to remain a man, a righteous man, a good man, a God-honoring man, he must put her away because he can't understand it. But God reveals to him. He reveals to him the truth. And he puts his weight on that truth. And now he says, against all scandal, against any accusations of the community, against anybody that would mock my faith, I have peace. Because God has revealed it. God has said it. I believe it. I put my weight on it. I have peace. Is there something that God has shown you that you're not putting your weight upon? Is there something in this scripture even today that Jesus Christ has come for sinners of whom I'm the worst? Jesus Christ has come for me as a sinless man of whom He's the only one. And so He is my path and God reveals these things and we put our weight on them and we experience peace. And then finally, here 
we can see, though not clearly in this text, we can see Joseph standing on his feet. We can see Mary conforming her life around the incarnation. Now Joseph, his life is going to be impacted by the incarnation. He's going to live an incarnate life. He's going to be obedient to God. And I believe that he is going to experience a sense of joy that this is what has long, this is a prophecy that we've long awaited. God has not abandoned us. God has come to earth. God has come and he is now in union with us. He embraces us and he will never let us go. And I believe that Joseph and Mary, they began to live an incarnate life. God, Emmanuel, is with us. And that's seen in the community that we live in. This morning, as we prepare to make our approach to this table, be reminded of the gospel. The gospel is this. Jesus didn't come to earth as a reward or a prize for our obedience. He came because Jesus Christ, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, said we are not satisfied. We are not satisfied to live disconnected from men and women. We would come and we would bridge the gap. We would come into this world And he will go on to lay down his life for us in order to complete the path to him in order that he might be in relation with us. He came. He sought us out. This is his activity in order to bring us back into union with him. Do you believe it? Do you receive it? Do you rejoice in it? Let us pray.